You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Twenty fourth of April, nineteen sixty three, Forest of Dean, Gloucester, England. Warlocks do not age gracefully. Victor Sokolov had drawn this conclusion after meeting several warlocks. Now he watched a fourth man from afar, and what he saw supported his conclusion. Age and ruin lay heavy over the figure who emerged from the dilapidated cottage in the distant clearing. The old man hobbled toward a hand pump, an empty pail hanging from the crook of his shriveled arm. Victor adjusted the focus on his binoculars. No, not gracefully at all. Victor had met one fellow whose skin was riddled by pockmarks, yet another had burn scars across half his face. The least disfigured had lost an ear, and the eye on that side was a shrunken, roomy marble. These men had paid a steep price for the wicked knowledge they carried, paid it willingly. This new fellow fit the pattern, but Victor wouldn't know for certain if he had found the right person until he could get a closer look at the old man's hands. Better to do that in private. He slid the binoculars back into the leather case at his waist, careful not to rustle the mound of bluebells that concealed him. The clearing was quiet except for the squeaking of rusted metal as the old man labored at the pump, a narrow pipe caked in flaking blue paint. But that noise felt muted somehow, as though suffocated by a thick silence. Victor hadn't heard or seen a single bird in the hours he'd lain here. Even sunrise had come and gone without a peep of birdsong. A breeze drifted across his hiding spot in the underbrush, carrying with it the earthy scents of the forest and the latrine stink of the old man's privy. But the breeze dissipated, as though reluctant to linger among the gnarled oaks. The old man hobbled back to the cottage. His palsied gait sent water slopping over the brim of the pail. It muddied the path between the cottage and the well. Wooden shingles rattled when the old man slammed the door. Victor didn't need binoculars to see how the roof sagged. This had likely thrown the door frame out of true. The single window had probably been stuck closed for years. Sprigs of purple wildflowers poked out of gaps in the shingles here and there, alongside bunches of green and yellow moss. Raindrops pattered through the trees. Just a sprinkle at first, but it swelled into a persistent drizzle. The cold English rain didn't bother Victor. He was a patient man. Ian Tregillis is the author of The Milkweed Triptych. The first two novels were Bitter Seeds and The Coldest War. The final book in this trilogy is Necessary Evil. Thank you for joining me, Ian. You're welcome. Thank you for the opportunity. Ian, these books key off of a Second World War that looks very different from the one we experienced, and the changes that you make involve two programs, competing programs, one in the U.K. and one in Germany. Talk about developing those programs yourself as a writer. The German program came from the desire to write sort of a fun popcorn adventure in the vein of Indiana Jones. So I long ago I had read about a piece of World War II trivia called Project Habakkuk, which was a, a real-life project by the British Admiralty where they had investigated the feasibility of building ships out of ice. They wanted to build aircraft carriers out of ice because ice doesn't sink. Um, it was, so it wasn't such a crazy idea, but they never got that off the ground for various reasons. But when I'd read about that, I couldn't get the idea of these vast 
Berg ships plying the North Atlantic out of my imagination. So I thought, well, what might have happened if that program had gotten off the ground and been successful? And I was driving to work one day, and I still remember the spot on the road where I was when I realized the obvious answer was that the Germans would have sent a pyrokinetic spy in to sabotage the shipyards. So from that, I had the notion of this program that was creating these people with unusual abilities. After I'd been thinking about that for a while, I started to think about how British intelligence would have responded if they'd learned about this program. I became very enamored of the idea of a man whose job was to fight these people with very unusual abilities, you know, a normal man forced to try to fight superheroes. So that was the origin of um, the British response to this. And I decided that since they had no way of combating the Germans fighting fire with fire, so to speak, I decided that they might have rallied the secret mages of Albion to help defend the island against the inevitable invasion. That, that's such an interesting concept. And you do such a great job of developing that. Talk about creating the British side of this equation, the warlocks and that have existed for generations, and the characters that came out of that program. Um, they came out of two things that were sort of interests of mine. I'm very interested in linguistics, although I'm not a linguist, and in fact, I don't even have a knack for languages. Uh, but a friend of mine is a linguistic anthropologist, and we were chatting once, and she had told me about a legend that I guess linguistic anthropologists tell each other at parties. Um, the story goes that long, long ago, the Greeks had wanted to determine who the oldest culture was. And they'd reasoned um, you know, fair, fairly straightforwardly that the oldest culture in the world would be the culture that spoke the oldest language. So they reasoned if they could figure out the oldest language on Earth, they would know where from whence humanity had sprung up. So the story goes that they, somebody took some newborn children, ripped them from their mothers, trucked them out into the country where they could be raised in the complete absence of all human influences. And then they waited a few years for them to spontaneously start speaking the Ur language. And the story goes that, sure enough, they did this, and these children, after a few years, began to speak Sumerian or something like that. Now, I, I doubt that's actually what happened. But as, as soon as he told me that, I thought, well, there's my magic system. It's so twisted, magic based on um, sensory deprivation of children. Uh, I'm also very interested in uh, the science fiction and fantasy that deals with demonology, this idea that you can commune with a greater force to bend the laws of nature. James Blish wrote a book called The Devil's Day that first introduced me to this idea. So I, I tried to marry those two notions, thinking, well, perhaps somebody in the Middle Ages did try this experiment with children, and they did. It worked to the extent that they accessed this sort of Ur language. But probably the language of let there be light, the language of the Garden of Eden, probably would not have been a human language at all. So I call this language Enochian, which is what John Dee, who's a, I think a 17th century mystic, had called what he thought was the language of angels. So I, I, uh, I used Enochian, but I decided that probably he wasn't talking to angels. He was talking to something a little darker. The darkness that you create... Uh, you call them the Eidolon. Now, you're a physicist by nature, or you work in a physics lab, is that correct? That's correct, yes. And I, I detect in the way you've created these creatures that they seem to stem in large part as much from uh, modern 
notions of modern quantum physics as they do from John Dee. <laughs> I decided early on that I wanted to give myself complete freedom to break the laws of physics. Um, if I adhered too closely to um, scientific rigor, I think it would have felt more like taking my work home with me. So I tried to make the eidolons something that are completely immune to the laws of physics. You know, they, they, I think in the book someone says they live outside of time and space. And so um, they're able to do things that should be completely impossible. Um, the same goes for the German supers in these books as well. Early on, I had thought that I would be a little more rigorous in the way I created their powers by letting each, each power be the violation of a single law of physics, but that everything else would have to follow logically from that. I threw, out, I threw that out the window so quickly when I realized how constraining that was. Um, you know, when it, when it comes to the choice between scientific rigor and something that's fun, I just chose fun instead. These books are a lot of fun, and one of the things I think that I, I really enjoy about the books are the way you've created this cast of characters on the German and on the English side. I love the Germans, and I especially love Klaus and Gretel. Tell thank us you. about creating these two characters who are so fascinating and central oh, to you. the books. Thank you. Um, Gretel, early on, had been actually just a little bit of set dressing that I'd put in the background of sort of my first explorations of this world, just for fun. But the more I thought about her, the more fascinating she became. Of course, that's a common trope, you know, the Cassandra characters or the Oracle that people don't understand. And at some point I was thinking about precognition and the fact that, you know, a, a precog might be 30 seconds ahead of everyone else. But if she's really good, she could be 30 years ahead of everyone else. So I started playing this game with myself, thinking, what if everything she did was an advancement of something that is so far in the future that people can't conceive of what she's doing? And then I made her a sociopath just to make it fun. Um, the problem with writing that character, Gretel actually knew everything I knew about the first and second books and well into the third book of the series. So it, I couldn't use her as a point of view character because I felt like I would have had to do so much dancing around what was in her head that it would have been cheating the reader. So I had to reverse engineer, I'm very mercenary, I had to reverse and engineer another character near her who could see everything she was doing but have his own interpretations um, and also give us access to the German side of, of the story. So I, I gave her a brother, Klaus, who is another survivor of this program that created the German supers. Um, he has the ability to walk through walls, which then makes him useful in the plot so that he can have his own arc as well. But he originally he was there just to always be conveniently near Gretel when she does something interesting. That's so great. And one of the things you mentioned was that both these characters were brought up as children. And that's a, a theme in this book of using children to fight wars. And that's something we're experiencing right now. Essentially, these are books about child soldiers. That's right. This is very much a, a Bitter Seeds in particular, and all through the rest of the series. I think of it largely as a story about the relationships between adults and children, um, the responsibilities that we sometimes put on children that we shouldn't, our expectations of what children should become and what they shouldn't become, and how that changes children, um, children who never get to be children. Um, and I, I wanted the German program and what the British are doing to reflect each other quite a bit. You know, I've already mentioned that the British program 
the magic that they use is basically derived from the sensory deprivation of children. The German program, which created these people with unusual abilities, started with orphans, you know, World War I orphans, who were starving and homeless and taken in ostensibly for, out of charity, but truly out of the need to have medical subjects, because it took many, many years to figure out how to create the technology that would enable these children to do these unusual things. And very few survive this program. So I, I, I hoped that that would be sort of a mirror reflection, the German and the British sides of the, these unusual um, secret programs that they're using to fight this shadow war behind the war. Well, that's one of the things. You're exactly right, and that's exactly what happens for us as readers. Is as we get to know these things, we get to realize there are different sides of the same coin. Neither one inherently necessarily better than the other. And that brings us to the title of your third book, Necessary <laughs> Evil, which seems to be uh, part of your vision of this whole world. Yeah, I, I like to think of the titles of the books being sort of a reflection of where the primary protagonist, a British spy named Marsh, is in his life. He, the first book, Bitter Seeds, plants a lot of, if you will, seeds for things that um, that come later. I'm a big believer in the law of unintended consequences. And so all of the decisions that Germans make and that the British make in the first book come home to roost in 20 years later during the Cold War. So that title sort of wrote itself, The Coldest War. And The Necessary Evil is the book where all of the things that Marsh, all the responsibilities laid on his shoulders, and all of the things that he has learned from the first two books land on his shoulders. And he, the path that he has to walk through the end of the series is very dark and very morally ambiguous. So he does things even though he doesn't necessarily want to have to do them, hence necessary evil. As a writer, when you started this, how much of this series did you know? Yeah, I was thinking you were talking about Gretel being a clairvoyant, and I, you have to be a clairvoyant as well. <laughs> it took quite a bit of planning. I, I'm very lucky because I live in northern New Mexico where there's a very, very strong community of professional science fiction and fantasy writers. I had originally intended to write only one book in this world purely for practice. I didn't expect it to find an agent or to become published. I brought the idea to my writer's group just because I wanted to spend a year writing a book for practice to improve my craft. So I brought the basic outline of this universe to my writer's group and said, okay guys, I have this idea for a world and I know it's kind of dumb, but do you think it would be worth me spending a year on a book in this world just so that I could concentrate on my craft? Because every writer has his or her um, trunk novels, we call them, the books that you write that never find publication because they're the books you write while you're learning your craft. They were very enthusiastic about the idea behind these books. But the outline that I had brought them was actually akin to The Coldest War. It was a book that took place in the 1960s. And the main character was someone who had worked for British intelligence during World War II and had seen and experienced all sorts of fantastical events. And that I'm very enamored of the, the trope of the spy who comes in from the cold, you know, the retired spy who gets called back in because he's one of the few remaining people who know something about what's happening. So they pointed out to me that I couldn't write a book about the Cold War predicated on uh, World War II with superheroes and black magic and adventure without telling that story first. So they convinced me that this was actually a trilogy. Once they'd convinced me of that, then I realized that I had to 
think ahead about what Gretel was doing. Because the fun of writing a precog is that it's very easy to foreshadow things in very cryptic ways. Um, the writer Tim Powers has a phrase he calls playing card tricks in the dark. And that's sort of what I was doing with Gretel in the beginning. So I spent a lot of time working with my fellow writers to create an outline for the entire trilogy. Uh, we spent eight hours one day with a whiteboard plotting out the first and second and third books of this series so that we knew what Gretel was doing and when things that she did would cross over between the first book and the second book and the first book and the third book. So there was a lot of front-loaded effort to make sure that Gretel's machinations actually made sense when her purpose is revealed. Well, it's so interesting to hear that because it feels like that as we read the book. And one of the things that I found most interesting about the way the precognition plays out is the way that you use that, in a sense, to alter history. So I'd like you to talk about your sense of taking real history and alternate history and moving from one to the next and where you, what you pluck out of real history and leave kind of untouched in your alternate history. That was a very difficult thing for me to do because I am not a historian by training. Uh, I certainly would never claim to be very knowledgeable about history of World War II. I didn't, in the course of writing these books, assemble an entire bookshelf full of uh, research materials. I knew that I would, because of that, I knew that my best bet was to try to change history in a very radical way as quickly as possible. So I needed, again, I, I like to reverse engineer my plots. So I knew I needed a major historical event that took place as close to England as possible, as early in the war as possible, as close to England as possible so that my characters could be involved in a direct, um, direct fashion. So those criteria sort of pointed me to the evacuation of Dunkirk. So then I, I started reading out about that, and I looked to see how easy would it be to change the outcome of Dunkirk, where... Um, Many, many tens of thousands of British and French troops were evacuated from the beaches and uh, taken to England. They, Although they lost a lot of material, they lived to fight another day. Um, Britain did not lose an army on the beaches of Dunkirk. It was actually very easy to spin a scenario where that didn't happen and where, again, tens of thousands of soldiers never made it home and weren't there to defend England from invasion. I hoped that once I had made that change to the history, readers would give me a little more leeway to play with the extrapolations that take place as history continues to diverge from our own. I won't say that I necessarily did a rigorous extrapolation, but I, I certainly tried. The Because of what happens early in that book, the Blitz is, in, in as depicted in Bitter Seeds, is much longer and much more brutal than what actually happened. Uh, which was a long and brutal bombing campaign in London. So I was still able to use a lot of my research materials that spoke about life of everyday Britons living under the Blitz. So I, I used many details from memoirs and books written by people living at the time to try to give a sense of verisimilitude to the lives of the characters in London. Um, but as I say, I'm not a historian, so I tried to make one big change and hope that readers would go along for the ride after that. Well, I'm, I'm not surprised you used a lot of books uh, because it, it has the the feel of a nicely 
uh, well-informed piece. And but one book there that you make gets mentioned a few times in the trilogy is a book I remember reading from my youth, which is the William Shirer's "The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich," and I think that that's such a uh, a uh, keystone for many people to understand that whole time. And I would like to to talk a little bit about uh, how it informed your creation of Nazi Germany with uh, all this mad science attached. <laughs> I the Shire book is, I think, a phenomenal piece of scholarship. And I'm, I although it was put together a long time ago, I, I'm very grateful that somebody undertook that burden. I think it's one of the most important things ever written about the war. Which of course has engendered hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pieces of scholarly research, but *Rise and Fall of the Third Reich* is an amazing piece of documentation. So I did spend my copy of *Rise and Fall* is very dog-eared because again I tried to pull a lot of details from it about how the Reich functioned, how it shaped the people that were in it. Um, I imagine that in the altered history of the Milkweed books. Rise and Fall of the Third Reich is a very, very different book because the war evolves very differently in the Third Reich. Its evolution is very different in, shall we say, in these books. So Rise and Fall of the Third Reich might be a little bit shorter in this alternate universe, but it certainly did inform a lot of little details. You know, how did people talk? How did they dress? Um, the, and more so the mindset behind the people who are um, embroiled in this very strange and very dark world. One of the great people you have embroiled in this world is uh, Dr. Von Westtharp and his project, uh, which seems so possible and so plausible. I'm wondering if you based that on something that you – nugget of research you dug up somewhere and how much of that came out of your imagination. Yeah, so Von Westtharp, he, he's an interesting guy. Uh, at least I like to think so. He – was inspired by a real-life historical crackpot, a guy named Adolf Lanz, I believe, who was active in the late 19th century and early 20th century. He published his own sort of occult, I will call it a fanzine, this sort of occult crackpot fanzine um, under the name Dr. Uh, Lanz von Lebenfels. That was his pen name, very impressive pen name. He wrote a lot about biblical exegesis and eugenics and all sorts of very troubling ideas. He had published this uh, this fanzine or, or uh, leaflet for over 20 years. And the story goes that allegedly copies of his uh, this publication, which was called Ostara, were found in Hitler's pub personal library. So it's known that at least early on, Hitler was reading the work of Dr. Lanz von Lebenfels. The story also goes that Lebenfels was in Austria. So when Austria was annexed, um, the story goes that Hitler banned publication of Ostara because, and I find this very funny, he worried that the association with Lebenfels was making the Nazi party look bad. I, I find that amazing to think that Whatever he was doing or saying was so out there that he was making Hitler and Himmler look um, disreputable. Um, but anyway, he one of the key tenets of Lebenfels' philosophy was something called um, the Gotter electron, the divine electricity. And so I stole that directly from this 
crackpot and gave it to von Westarp, who, through years of experimentation, decides that sort of the Nietzschean will to power is a real thing, but it has to be unleashed through the use of electricity. So he embeds electrodes into the skulls of his test subjects. And then as long as those electrodes are connected to a battery, which retains a charge, they're then able to do unusual things. I also did that again for a mercenary plot reason, because that meant that the battery was a vulnerability, right? Superman isn't very interesting if there's nothing you can do to thwart him. So that was sort of my technological kryptonite. But von Westarp, yeah, he was based on a real crackpot. Wow, that's so great. <laughs> uh, you know, um, you talk about the batteries and the way this works with the Superman, and you do use this to great effect in many set pieces. Thank you. And so I'd like you to talk about a little bit about creating some of these set pieces. There's a a, a daring raid by the Brits on right. on the uh, on the stronghold, and that in particular is really one of those scenes that I can just see again and again <laughs> in my mind. Uh, it, and you use the batteries well there, don't you? <laughs> uh, well, thank you for saying that. I I tried very hard to choreograph a battle um, between sort of these German characters who can do these unusual things and a bunch of very ordinary British soldiers who are doing their very best to defend their homeland. Um, the batteries gave me a lot of fun opportunities. And I decided that the plucky Brits, once they figured out that this technology was based on batteries, they would think very hard about how to knock it out. So I decided that they developed very crude sort of electromagnetic pulse weapons that they would use to Temporary, temporarily knock out these batteries and even the playing field. The problem, of course, is that the Germans have a precog on their side. So she knows what's coming long before the Brits even come up with their plan to attack the Germans. So that, that also gave me another angle on these set pieces where we have Gretel doing things for her own reasons that nobody understands. They're ostensibly helping the Germans, possibly not possibly helping the British for reasons that are not at all clear to anybody except Gretel. It gives the Brits a lot of action and adventure to display as they um, put their heroism on the line. And it gives something, some tension to the German side of the battle because suddenly these characters who thought they were invincible find that they do in fact have a vulnerability. And those vulnerabilities, which are so interesting come as a result of the scientific research, which is, as ever on both sides of the Atlantic, is has, you know, two sides to it. And you're, you work in science. <laughs> you work in New Mexico. You, I'm not sure what you do as a physicist, but uh, physics has often been, uh, had, had two different results. I care to talk about how your experience as a physicist and looking back on the history of physics made you play with the history of physics and uh, government? <laughs> Certainly. Um, yeah, I do in my day job. I am a physicist at Los Alamos National Laboratory. Um, and I decided early on, because I, I, I like to keep my writing life and my, my science life separate, so I decided early on that I would write an alternate history where the Manhattan Project had never happened. Um, that sort of, for a number of reasons, both professionally and personally, kept the divide between my writing life and my work life very simple um, because it guaranteed that 
nothing in the books would would have any relationship to the work that I do. Los Alamos, of course, being the home of the Manhattan Project during the war. But the Germans, of course, are also using science, and that science gets kind of, uh, it's designed to to be weaponized. They're, they're weaponizing humans. That's right. That's absolutely right. I um, There's a lot of science fiction and fantasy literature where the Third Reich is in, deeply involved in the occult, where they're performing magic. Because um, Heinrich Himmler was very interested in the occult. And so that's a uh, you know wonderful grist for the mill. But because it's done so often, I decided I wanted to flip it around. Because the Third Reich was very technological. They did a tremendous amount of uh, weapons development. They had a very sophisticated R&D uh, pipeline. You know, we see that in things like the, the V1 and the V2 um, as just two examples. So I decided that it would be what they were doing was firmly rooted in science. Now, of course, it's mad science because what they're doing is completely impossible. But I liked the idea that what they were doing was the culmination of a very rigorous scientific mindset. And then I, I gave the Brits, um, you know, the, the sort of magical response so that I had still had technology and, and magic, sort of a little bit of science fiction and a little bit of fantasy. But it is a very dark thing that the Germans are doing and what von Westarp had been doing for many years by the time the books start. Because as I mentioned, he's experimenting on children. He's doing very gruesome medical experiments on, on human beings. And so it's a very cold and calculated program that I hoped would be a plausible piece of a world where the Holocaust is happening just off the side of the page. It's certainly something that could only happen in a world where the Holocaust was happening. One of the things I think you do very well in these novels um, is to uh, incorporate these bits of history like um, keeping the World War II and also the Cold War. I, the Iron Curtain, as you reimagine it, I think is really a lot of fun. So I'd like you to talk about creating this, uh, your vision of Europe with collectivized wineries. Oh, sure. Yeah, that was a lot of fun because by the end of the first book, The Bitter Seeds, history had changed so much. Then there's a 20-year a gap between Bitter Seeds and the Coldest War. So that enabled me to make wild extrapolations about how the world might have changed. As I said, I'm not a historian. So um, the further, the more leeway I could give myself to change history, the more comfortable I felt. And I hoped readers would sort of go along with that. So there is a Europe that is very different. The, the Iron Curtain fell much further to the West than it did in our world, and it encompasses part of France. And so I thought, well, what's a, what's a piece of world building that would really drive home that this is a very different Europe? So I thought about Lysenko and collectivism, and I decided that maybe the best wine in the world no longer comes from France because all the wineries have been collectivized. And so the, the vintners no longer care, and they're not working very hard. And I had a lot of fun with that. And people do respond to that. I think that's the piece of world building that I get the, in, from Coldest War that I get the most feedback on. When you uh, create the uh, characters for this whole book, for this whole series, they're really, they're very um, endearing to us. I really like all of them. So Thank you. I'd like you to talk about creating Marsh and Will and Gretel. And, and, and <laughs> Gretel is, is really a lot of fun for how evil she is. You know, I don't know that she's necessarily evil. I will say that she inhabits 
a different moral landscape than the rest of us. Um, I, I hope nobody else lives on that same landscape as Gretel does. Um, she, as I said, is sort of the, although we don't get to see inside her head very much, she's the axis mundi of the world. The whole trilogy spins around her machinations. She's a fun character to write, but very difficult. I found that she works best as a spice, you know, just a little bit of flavoring. Every once in a while, we get to see what she's doing. And she's certainly the character that readers respond to the most. Um, I, I think it's fun because people try to figure out if she's evil or if she's good. What is her end game? Is she doing things for a good reason or an evil reason? I spoke about her brother, who is reverse engineered to give us a point of view on the German side of the war and also to give us access to Gretel's machinations. Uh, Marsh and Will on the British side, I needed characters right in the thick of the action. So Marsh, I decided I wanted to have a spy who lands in the middle of this shadow war. He's an ordinary man, but he's stuck with the job of trying to figure out how to fight superheroes. I also needed a character who was a magician who could give us access to what the warlocks were doing. So again, I'm a very mercenary writer, so I like to reverse engineer people to be in the worst possible situation who also service the story as easily as possible. So I created Will, and it was worked best, I thought, if Marsh and Will knew each other. So I tried to create this friendship. They're friends from university. Will is descended from a long line of um, uh, dukes who also happened to dabble in this dark blood magic that is sort of the heritage of England going back many, many centuries. I decided it would be fun if Will could play off Marsh, Marsh being the hardened spy, if Will was sort of a more uh, lighthearted, somewhat inept, good-hearted, but um, usually somewhat incompetent, a little bit of set dressing, and I hope a little bit of levity in the books. I, I tried to give the friendship between Marsh and Will a very complex arc through all three books. They start out as friends, but the war takes quite a strain on that, and the d bad decisions that both of them make over the years uh, come home to roost again and again. So I, I hope that they all have an interesting arc, even though I reverse engineered them to have the worst possible lives that I could imagine. That reverse engineering worked out very well. It gave you the opportunity to uh, put some nice uh, Phillips and touches into these characters' lives. And one of the things I really love to learn, and I'm guessing this is a, a piece of... Uh, real history that I never heard about were, was the existence of funk holes. Right, the funk holes. Yeah, that was fascinating to me. Um, I'd first learned about funk holes while watching an episode of Foyle's War, which is uh, this wonderful um, period television series from the BBC. Um, so then I, I started reading up on them. Funk holes were places where people with a lot of money would go out into the country to sort of live in so a very posh bed-and-breakfast scenario to just ride out the war years. They would pool all of their rationing coupons and all of their money and live out in the country all through the war playing tennis and swimming and possibly punting. It was frowned upon, as you can imagine, very, um, very strongly by the general populace. But it was one scenario that sort of people with a lot of money who decided that it didn't really matter who won the war, that they had the money and influence to live comfortably no matter what the outcome of the war would be. 
So I, uh, once I read about that, I couldn't resist putting that in the books because it's, I think that is an evil much greater than anything Gretel is doing. It's very selfish and self-serving and cowardly at the same time. So, yeah, it was just such a neat piece of history I couldn't resist. Well, it's really fun to read about. I really enjoyed it. And I also really enjoyed you bringing up the number stations. So tell us a little oh, bit about yes. number stations. Oh, yes. Um, number stations are something I've been fascinated with for a very long time. Um, you know, in the heyday of the Cold War, and since then, all over the world and the um, shortwave radio bands, people have noticed that there are these unlicensed very mysterious radio stations that broadcast sometimes on a regular schedules just sequences of numbers being spoken. There might be a little snippet of um, a little bit of music at, you know, 1.33 in the morning and then 10 minutes of somebody reading numbers in English or Russian or German or French all over the world. This has been happening for decades. And the leading theory about what these are is that this is communication with spies living undercover in foreign countries. The numbers are basically a code. These spies probably have one-time pads secreted in their apartments somewhere. So these are orders being given to spies living you know, behind the Iron Curtain back in the days of the Cold War or living in America or France or China. It's just such a wonderful piece of spycraft that alleged spycraft, that we ordinary citizens can access just by turning on a radio. I love the romance of that because it's hard to listen to one of these and not wonder what sort of nefarious things are winging through the ether right past me, you know. So I, I uh, couldn't help but try to put a, a nod to the number stations in The Coldest War because that is a book really about Cold War espionage, or it tries to be a book about that. Um, there's a wonderful... A project called the Conant Project, where people recorded five CDs worth of snippets from shortwave uh, uh, radio uh, number stations all around the world, and I couldn't resist but buy that set. It's not something you listen to when you want to relax, because again, it's just people reciting numbers in sort of these stilted mechanical voices. But it's so mysterious and romantic that I had to put it in the books. It's it's really a lot of fun, and it's it does. I think it helps too to create this kind of vision as you say of things happening in between the spaces of the world that we don't expect to find things happening and that's exactly where the eidolons live and one of the things you do really well with these creatures which are the sort of demonic president mm -hmm. presences that the uh, british call upon is you have to create them to a certain degree as characters, but it must be a challenge to create a character who's essentially a god whose actions and even existence are almost incomprehensible to humans. That was definitely a challenge, and it took a lot of drafts before I had something that I felt uh, even remotely worked. Um, you know, the, it's, it's the old writing problem because you're trying to describe something that's indescribable. Um, so I, I had to think long and hard about what the sensory experiences of the characters would be when the Eidolons come on stage. The Eidolons are not bound by the laws of time and space. 
So the effect that they have on the world is very extreme. Um, I, I certainly borrowed a little bit from the sort of Lovecraftiana, this idea of these eldritch, these eldritch entities that are so vast that they are incomprehensible to humans. So at one point in one of the books, a character describes uh, the geometry of the world running like soft candle wax around sort of the searing hot reality of one of these beings. I tried, so I, I rested mostly on the confusion and discombobulation that the characters feel whenever, and the tremendous terror that they feel when these vast beings come on the stage. Uh, I, I did my best, but like I said, since they're indescribable, I, I maybe wrote myself into a corner here and there. <laughs> well, no, I, th I thought they were really a lot of fun to read. And that's one of the things I think that's so interesting about these books is because you do a great job of taking the material and the creation, all this kind of wild science, uh, magic that seems like science, taking it seriously enough so that as we read it, we take it seriously. Yet there's a lot of fun to be had in these books as well. Tell us a little bit about finding that balance. There's there's moments where there's actually humor. There's one point where uh, I think Gwendolyn is described as having dinners with the Duke and having to share a bathroom with the insane and somewhat disturbing product of a Nazi experiment. <laughs> I thought it was a great sentence. Thank you very much. I tried very hard to sprinkle little bits of levity in where I could. Um, I do think these books um, lent themselves to a very dark tone. And as a beginning writer, I found that it was easier to do dark things than light things. Comedy is by far the hardest thing to do as a writer. And I'm always in great awe and admiration of people who can do that. Nevertheless, I, I tried to modulate the emotional tone here and there. Uh, and again, that's sort of where Will comes in. I like some of the dialogue between Will and Gwendolyn in the second book because they have sort of this lighthearted relationship. At least in the beginning, their marriage is very strong, and so I got to put a lot of banter in there. Um, and I, I tried to play him off of many different characters in the books. The warlocks that Will works with are a very grim set of characters. So I tried to make him the opposite of them so that he doesn't entirely fit in their world. He doesn't fit among the spies. He doesn't fit among the magicians. And anytime you have that sort of uh, friction where the pieces don't fit together, uh, there are opportunities for misunderstandings or, you know, a little bit of comedy. And uh, that really works well. And one of the things I think I, I really liked, I thought about the characters and the way they fit together that worked well, was your sense of the way the character arcs Particularly, I think Klaus has a, a fabulous arc and, Thank you. and Gretel and, and Marsh. So talk about creating these arcs and how much you knew in advance and how much um, you had to go off the your outline once you started actually writing the prose. Klaus, I, I'm glad to hear you say that. Uh, Klaus was the character that I knew I wanted to have him become sympathetic, even though he's on the German side of the story. I hoped that his character evolution would make him a very sympathetic character. Uh, I can't claim whether or not I achieved that, but that was my goal. He has, he starts as um, a true believer in the project that created him and a true believer in the Third Reich and a true believer in what they're doing in the conquest. But 
partially because of the things he sees just as a soldier and partially because of all the strange things he sees his sister see over he sees his sister perform over the years he comes to doubt the uh, value of what he's doing and he become he starts to question his own identity as a soldier he comes to think of himself as sort of a, a pawn in a much bigger game so over the books he has a pretty radical change of opinion and he has a crisis of faith about his own purpose in the world so he comes from being um, a sort of narrow-minded true believer to somebody like the rest of us who even though we don't have unusual abilities we all day to day have to figure out what our place in the world is going to be and what our path through it will be so that's what I wanted Klaus to do Will um, starts out as a very lighthearted, well-meaning character, but he's embroiled in something very dark because he is instrumental in bringing blood magic into um, the sort of calculus of combat that the British use to defend Albion. And that starts to take a terrible toll on him when the true cost of what he has put into motion lands on his shoulders. So I decided that was a great way to break a character. Um, and then Marsh, of course, caught in the middle of these two forces, is, uh, you know, he, he's, the, he's the grain caught between the millstones. And so um, he has no choice but to get ground down by the world and the choices that he has to make as the story goes on. You know, choice is a is a really interesting theme in this book, and it's an interesting theme um, in history. At one point, uh, one of the characters thinks about that history provided no comfort in what if, no solace in if only. <laughs> yeah, we had a lot of fun in my writers group while I was writing these books, having long discussions, always always instigated by the presence of Gretel in this story, about the meaning of history and the meaning of free will and um, you know whether there was such a thing as free will, whether Gretel had free will, whether other characters in the story had free will or whether they were just Gretel's puppets, and whether history had any meaning if you have a character who can see the future and is ostensibly making choices that change the course of the future then um, that gives you a very strange perspective on what the past is and what past and future actually mean and whether they actually are distinct or not. Uh, so I, I uh, tried to use that as a way to play with some of these notions and I have the characters reflect on the choices that they make in what they perceive as the past and come to regret some of the things they've done or not done as time goes on. You know, uh, when you're talking about the past, it made me think a, a, a little bit about um, our present, and that's always a good thing when you're reading a book. And one of the things I was thinking about was that uh, in response to this, these tragic events in Boston, there's a lot of finger pointing saying, oh, you mm -hmm. should have been able to figure this out. You should have been able to, quote, connect the dots. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people, uh, Bruce Schneier had an article on CNN about this, that a lot of people are suffering what's from what's called hindsight bias, where look back, in hindsight, right. everything is obvious. I'd like you to talk about the effect of hindsight bias in terms of writing a book where one of the characters is clairvoyant, uh, maybe slight, only slightly less clairvoyant than you, the writer. <laughs> I'm 
early on, one of my writer friends in New Mexico, a very, very talented guy named Daniel Abraham, said he found these books fascinating because Gretel was the character who knew everything I knew, you know, that I, the writer, knew about what was going to happen. Um, when we meet her as an adult in Chapter 1 of Bitter Seeds, she is already thinking ahead to the very last line of The Coldest War, so, you know, a whole two books later. I think the characters in the books do come to regret many of the decisions that they make during the war exactly because they have hindsight bias. But I think they're being unfair to themselves. I have them do that because that's a very human thing to do. The situation that they are faced with in the first book of the series is so extreme that when they're in the thick of it, the choices that they make seem like really good ideas at the time. They don't have the luxury of thinking ahead 20 years to, well, gosh, what are the ramifications going to be if we do this? They are more concerned with surviving from day to day. But of course, after 20 years goes by, any human being in the world would look back and say, oh gosh, the situation I'm in now isn't as great as I'd hoped it'd be. And it's because of these things I did in my past. If only I had done this. If only this hadn't happened. If only I hadn't um, decided to evacuate my family from on this day. Um, if only I had taken a left instead of a right. That's just a terribly human thing to do. Because we try to make find meaning in the world. But sometimes the world is just nonsensical. Um, you know, there's a maxim that a lot of writers tell each other, which is that, uh, you know, a book, a fiction novel has to make sense, but the real life, real life doesn't. And that's often the case when you have a tragedy like what happened in Boston. We try to make sense of it, of what is essentially a very senseless act. And so hindsight bias is one of the things we do to convince ourselves that the world unspools to some kind of plot that is explicable. You know, I mean, the plot is in a book, something that's explicable. And if we just saw things in the right way, everything would make sense. But that's certainly not the case in real life. That's so true. And I think it, what's so interesting to me about um, one of the things you do in these books with history is the books are begin as alternate history. But then <laughs> that's not enough for you, is it? No. Um, I played a lot with um, alternate history and secret history, and um, one person asked me if I was uh, guilty of dabbling in crypto history, which I'm not even sure I know what that is. Um, but yes, there are elements of both alternate history and secret history in this whole trilogy. And um, by the end, it's my hope that the conclusion of the series sheds light on the world that we're living in today. It's sort of I try to make a lot of the story take places in the nooks and crannies of history where um, things might not be documented very well um, for various complicated reasons that come clear through the series. Um, there's a reason that we've never heard of warlocks or, um, you know, this German program that was taking place. And, um, I, I had a lot of fun with that, and I hope that readers, when they get to the end, will see that um, I was sort of playing a game to entertain myself playing with various interpretations of history. Well, one of the things you begin to think as you read this book and become immersed in this history, I was thinking a little bit of uh, the Borges 
uh, famous Borges story, Talon Akbar Tertius Orbitus, where somebody oh, yes. creates a, yes. an encyclopedia that kind of replaces the standard encyclopedia and thus changes history, essentially, right, right. by fiat. And when we're immersed in an alternate history like yours and thinking, well, this is kind of the world that I'm in now, you start to think, well, gosh, the world, our, what we consider the real world, is itself an alternate history. Exactly. That's exactly right. Um, I like to imagine, in fact, that there are, like the Borges story, little fragments of that other world still present in, in our history. Um, although this isn't called out in the books, I like to imagine that um, the famous Voynich manuscript is actually a remnant of this other history, this sort of shadow history that took place. The Voynich manuscript is a very famous manuscript that sits in the, I think, the um, in Yale University, which is, uh, it appears to be a collection of, of um, herbal recipes and astrology and um, other things, but it's written in a script that nobody has ever been able to decode, possibly perhaps because it's a hoax and there's actually no meaning behind this cryptic script. But I like to imagine that it's actually something that the British warlocks had written it's actually a record of this ancient language that is long dead. Um, so I, I like to, like you say, it's like, it's like the Borges story. Um, it's not exactly an encyclopedia, but it's a fragment of another reality that um, is inexplicable to those of us who don't know what the shadow history actually was. Well, and history too plays out in an interesting way because one of the things you point out was that um, when the Nazis were building these enormous buildings, Part of their reason for doing so was, and I guess the Ozymandias reasons, look upon yes. my works, ye mighty and despair. Right, exactly. When um, I had to write a sequence that took place in Berlin at the height of the war, and so I was reading a lot about Albert Speer, who um, was very close with the leadership of the Third Reich, and who had this strange notion, his theory of ruin value, um, the idea being that you should build grand works of architecture that were so great that a thousand years hence or two thousand years hence when history had gone on its merry way and an empire at its height was almost forgotten, the very ruins of empire would still inspire people with awe. I thought that was such a wonderfully megalomaniacal way of, in, way of building the world that I had to mention that in the books, this this crazy aspiration that is a reflection of what the Third Reich was trying to do. Um, so it was fun to put that on stage because um, it, it's a very material and tangible reflection of what the Brits in the story were fighting against. And I'd like you to talk a little bit about the spy tropes that run through all these novels, which make them so much fun. Thank you. I appreciate hearing that. I am certainly not very knowledgeable about spycraft, so I had to do the very best I could. I read a lot of John Le Carré uh, while writing these books, Le Carré being one of the great masters of uh, Cold War espionage thrillers, and Alan First being sort of the master of the World War II spycraft novel. I certainly would never claim that I, I came anywhere close to the kind of plausibility that those men put into their books. But I tried to learn from them and get little bits and pieces of the spy's mindset and the way 
a character steeped in spycraft would see the world. So, um, and also spies are just really fun vehicles for fiction. Could you talk a little bit about maybe some of your plans, your plans for the future as a writer? Certainly. I have another book coming out in December called Something More Than Night, which is a Raymond Chandler and Dash Hill Hammett-inspired noir murder mystery that takes place in heaven. It's about the murder of an angel, and the characters around that dead celestial being have to try to deal with the terrible consequences that come from this traumatic this traumatic event that changes sort of the afterlife and life on Earth. I had a lot of fun with that because I spent a lot of time reading the great noir writers trying to infuse the book with the flavor of a 1930s detective story. Um, and I'm also hard at work on a new trilogy, which is, again, an alternate, a fantasy alternate history. I don't know why I keep doing this to myself because, as I've said, I'm not a historian. But that's a sort of a clock punk or steampunk world filled with brass servitors that walk around making TikTok noises as they serve their human masters. It's another story about free will, actually, free will and slavery. And of course, there are spies and explosions in it because I guess those are my go-to tropes. I've been speaking with Ian Tregillis. His latest novel is... Necessary Evil. It's the third book in the Milkweed Triptych, which consists of Bitter Seeds in the Coldest War and Necessary Evil. Thank you for joining me, Ian. You're very welcome. Thank you for the opportunity. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.